Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today probably needs no introduction. Today I'm talking to Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan is a writer, activist, and former politician. If you haven't read her memoirs, Infidel and Nomad, then you've missed out on one of the most beautiful story arcs that I've ever encountered. Her new book is called Prey, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. Her thesis is that the wave of migration from Muslim-majority countries into Europe has caused an increase in sexual violence towards women in receiving countries. This is an uncomfortable topic, but an important one nonetheless, and there's no one better to discuss it with than Ayan. Unfortunately, I was not able to get Ayan on video, so this will be an audio-only episode. So without further ado, Ayan Hirsi Ali. Okay, Ayan Hirsi Ali, thanks so much for coming on my show. Coleman, thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege. So I had your husband on several months ago, and I've been a fan of your work for many years, so it's, it's a privilege to finally have you on. You're a huge fan of your work and still am. Thank you. I appreciate that. So the subject of our conversation today is your latest book, Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. This is uh, a, an uncomfortable and important topic to discuss, namely the apparent rise in sexual violence as a result of increased immigration from Muslim-majority nations to Europe over the past five years. So it's, it's hard to know where to start with this subject, but can you just describe your reasons for writing this book and caring about this subject? So obviously the subject is uh, completely in alignment with the work I've been doing now for nearly 20 years of, you know, these conversations about women's rights. And I focused a lot and still continue to do on immigrant women. Uh, in particular Muslim women who came to Europe and whose families came to Europe who were growing up there and then who find themselves uh, subjected to the cultural norms of the countries of origin uh, and sometimes the countries of origin of their parents because some of these women were born and raised in Europe. By the way, uh, we have similar problems in the United States as well, uh, but I'm just going to focus in Europe because that's what this book is about. But then over time, as the number of immigrants, uh, as the numbers got bigger and bigger, uh, and most of these men are coming from Muslim-majority countries, you see this spillover where it's not really only immigrant women who are suffering at the hands of immigrant men. The immigrant men are now assaulting, groping, harassing, and making the public space unsafe for all women. Uh, why did I decide to write this book? I decided to write it because I found enough, you know, enough anecdotal evidence uh, that was compelling enough. And then when I had conversations with some of the European leaders, people who look into this, no one wanted to touch it. 
it is uh, a career destroying thing to say anything on the issues of Islam, immigration, and especially when it's related to sexual violence. And most researchers, commentators, academics, and investigative journalists in Europe will say, you know, if you bring these issues to the public, they're only going to benefit the populists and the far right. But paradoxically, uh, by saying nothing, by doing nothing, by looking away, that actually benefits the populists and the far right. Yeah, I want to dwell on this topic right at the beginning, because I think I agree with you that this is a misunderstanding about what it means to give ammunition to hateful groups and to racist groups. If you just think about that idea, it is true that white supremacists and the alt-right love the topic of you know, brown-skinned immigrant men committing crimes, right? This is, this is just red meat for them. And so, so the question is, what do you do with that fact, right? And, and under what circumstances is this actually ammunition for their movement, right? It's only ammunition for their movement if nobody else loudly condemns it, right? Yeah. If everyone else condemned it, by definition, it couldn't be ammunition for them in particular. And, and sometimes I, I think about, it can be useful to think about hypotheticals on other topics as a way of thinking clearly about this. So for instance, if you think of the problem of anti-Black racism in, in right. the United States, right now it's the case that this is you know, a widespread concern. You can, you can if, if, you've, if you're a Black person that's been victimized by racism, you you have you can go to the New York Times and see pieces that voice and express your concerns. The Democratic Party certainly, and even the Republican Party, are going to be talking about your issue. But imagine if it were only the Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan, for instance, that were loudly condemning anti-Black racism. So the only place you could sort of hear your experience bemoaned was was you know Louis Farrakhan's foaming at the mouth anti-Semitic speeches, right? That would give that uh, set of ideas much more play in, in the space of ideas. And, and so I really worry that that's what's, what's happening with anything to do with crime committed by non-white people, frankly. That's crime committed by non-white people in white majority Western liberal societies. And so what the racial issue is to the United States of America, the issue of immigration is to some of the European countries that took in large numbers of immigrants, and, and then in particular from Muslim majority countries. So in Europe, we're now seeing, and I think we see it also in other countries, that immigrants from non-Muslim countries assimilated or in any case, are not the subject of, I would say, national or international conversations. They are not being targeted by the extreme right-wing, white supremacist, racist types. Because they give these racist types no reason to have, uh, to, to have a gripe with them, you know, to moan and complain about, about them. With the and I'm, I'm not saying all Muslims um, fail to integrate, but a small subset of them assimilate and are well-adapted, and then a large group is not. 
And that gives, that is exactly as you said, red meat for the populists, for the far right, for the white supremacists. It gives them a reason to, it gives them a reason for their racism. It gives them a reason to argue, to tell the general population, I told you so. We don't want these people here because look, they assault women, they're intolerant, they're backward. It gives them an excuse. It gives them a reason to, to complain. Now, the racial relations in the U.S., those I think are very, very different because the black people, at least uh, the descendants of African-Americans uh, here in America, were not brought, the, the, the ancestors were not brought here. They didn't come here voluntarily. They were brought here by force. They were brought against their will. They were subjected to slavery. They were subjected to segregation and discrimination. And even though the laws have changed, uh, there's still a lot of racism that goes on in the U.S. In Europe, things are different. We have we have people who are coming to Europe voluntarily. They're risking their lives to come to Europe. They're risking their lives. They have dreams of getting to a place that's safe, that's politically stable, and where they can have an opportunity, economic opportunity. And the expectation of the European populations is. If these are the reasons why immigrants are coming, then why are they causing trouble? Why are they not assimilating? Why are they not, you know, being thankful for what they get? And so there are similarities, I would say, between the attitudes of the elites and those who are in many ways too worried about racism and extremism in the U.S. and in, in Europe. But the the immigrants and, and their situation is very, very different from the African-Americans here in, in the U.S. Yes. Yeah, so to a skeptic, what's the best evidence that A, that sexual violence has actually increased in the past four or five years in Europe, and then B, that that's caused by an influx of uh, young male migrants? So what I did is... First of all, ask the agencies that the government agencies that are supposed to collect this data for that information. You go on their websites and you ask for this data and they give you what they have. Then I also compiled what I could find in the newspapers, which I think of more as anecdotal evidence. And then I had interviews with various people, with survivors, with people from the press, uh, with people from the government. And what I found in Europe is because of this fear of linking immigration and Islam and refugees and asylum seekers, you know, this fear of feeding the far right, a lot of data points are omitted. So there is no formal collection of data on, say, one's ethnic background or national background or religious background. Now, all of that aside, what I found. Uh, is just let's just start with the numbers of people who come in. So 3.7 million people came illegally into Europe since 2009. In Europe, it's not like America where you can um, try and you know you can come into America as looking for economic opportunity, and that's fine. There are ways of doing that. You can use the asylum system. You can use you, there are all sorts of different ways of coming in. In Europe. For the type of immigrant that I'm talking about, it seems as if the only real way to get into Europe is to use the asylum system. 
So two thirds of the 3.7 million people, all of them, so two thirds are male and they all asked for asylum. Now, another point I just really want you to a data point that I thought was interesting was that 80% of these asylum seekers were under the age of 35. Again, two thirds of anybody who's coming in are male and they're all under the age of 35. So even before you know anyone's nationality or ethnicity or anything, that tells you trouble, not just sexual violence, but any kind of trouble. And I would say any kind of youth bulge like that is associated uh, with trouble. I think this is worth spelling out a little more for people because like what's implied here, and, and, and this is true, is that if you have a, a typical population of refugees is going to be whole families fleeing something, right? Whereas yeah. a typical population of economic migrants often tends to be young men. And there's yeah. a, there's a history of this in America as well. It's, it's not a, a, not often discussed, but when Italian immigrants came here at the turn of the century, it was almost entirely young men, young men coming over here to work and uh, as temporary workers and sending money home. And and there was a huge crime problem among that population as well. So how it's really, how important is it that we're talking about predominantly young men not in the context of families and marriages, but just in the context of each other? So I think if you, I I spoke to a number of demographers and sociologists, people who look at this type of thing and where anywhere where you have an overwhelming majority of young men unaccompanied by families, unaccompanied by women, regardless of their skin color, their ethnicity, even their social backgrounds, that type of youth vote, just young men in those numbers is a source of trouble. <laughs> and I know you're a young man. I mean, I don't want to make light of this, but they are, what you get is a lot of disorderly behavior, um, violence of various types, robberies, gang forming. I think you see that also with young men coming from Central Asia, this notion for young men to want to belong to something and then it, it, it can be this gang forming behavior and of course sexual violence and, and so that is more of a human nature thing than it is specific to one culture or one nation or one ethnicity and so having said that in Europe they have these large numbers of young men coming in of course the reasons are totally understandable if you're making your way from Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan or different parts of Africa, that journey is arduous. You have to uh, deal with people smugglers. You're going to you know, be in the rough and tumble of a, a very long journey uh, with lots of pauses, camping in places that are really harsh, too harsh to describe. And these people are mostly fleeing violence. Yes, they are seeking economic opportunity, but they're coming from states that have that are broken down orders broken down even tribal order is broken down and they're coming from places with a very low violence threshold and so they are male and young because they are the ones who are strong enough to be able to kind of make that journey across the mediterranean many of them drown many of them die many of them give up uh, and so it's really important to understand that 
I'm not talking about people who are sexual tourists, you know, saying let's just go to Europe and and maraud and and attack women. It's not like that at all. These are people who are freely suffering, who make their way and then fall into this kind of of behavior. Yeah, and to give a a sense of the dire straits that they're fleeing from, there was a moment in your book where you discuss some migrants that were arrested for sex crimes and did prison time. And I can't remember if you were talking to, to them or to someone who, who had interviewed them, but there was a sense that there, there's an attitude that prison in the West is still less unbearable than being deported. Yes. It, it, uh, yes. I talked to various uh, Muslim men who are well adapted and thrived and uh, are very much assimilated into Sweden and Germany and they and France and the UK. And they all say the same thing. They say that prison in Europe, in some of these Northern European countries, is seen as a joke by some of the perpetrators of terrorism or sexual violence or whatever. Another thing I had also about prisons is that uh, some of these, it was one of the, uh, he didn't want to be named, but one of the government officials said one of the reasons that their kind, this was in Germany, they're reluctant to send sexual violence perpetrators to prison is they say, they go in as rapists, they come out as terrorists. And so some of these prisons have been turned into places where uh, people will go in for felonies that are not related to Islamic radicalism, and then they get radicalized inside prison. And once they're released, that's when they they start plotting terrorist acts. And, and some of these incidents have been seen. So these countries are really, really reluctant, A, to change their criminal justice systems and adapt it to the new, to the new reality, and B, prison they, they see really as making things worse. And so some of these immigrant men were saying, Perhaps the most, the strongest punishment for these young men that could be a deterrent for others would be to remove them from the country or threaten to remove them from the country, put them back where they came from, because that's really the kind of punishment they understand. Uh, and that they will understand that punishment because their families invested so much money and time and, and goodwill in these boys, these young men. And so for them to be returned is a source of shame for the whole family. It, it's, it's a, it says that you're a failure. So that would have been perhaps a more effective punishment. But just to give you an idea of the numbers on sexual violence, even though there are so many data points that are omitted, there was this event on New Year's Eve 2015, 2016 in Cologne in Germany. And there were in just that event, women were attacked by large numbers of immigrant men. 1,200 women reported that they were assaulted. 24 of them said they were raped. 153 suspects. So not everyone was caught, but those who were caught, those and, and was charged with suspicion of that crime, uh, almost all of them were foreign. 103 of them came from Morocco and Algeria, not Syria. Not any of these war-torn countries, but from Morocco and Algeria. Another country, 
that I think has done a good job of at least, you know, keeping data relatively well is Denmark. In 2015, that country's share of immigrants, they, they give them, they call them non-Westerns. And that's the non-Westerns, uh, excluding the ones who were born in Denmark. Non-Westerners were only 5 to 6% of the population. And yet, between 2015 and 2019, they accounted for 11% of convictions of sex offenses and 34% of convictions for rape. And one thing, Coleman, I can tell you about sexual offenses and rape, women don't like to report those. So even if, if you look at these convictions and these rapes, that's still the very, very tip of the iceberg because most sexual offenses, most rape goes unreported and even when reported unconvicted. Yes, so that's so. the idea. If only 5 to 6% of the population is accountable for 34% of, I mean, you can pretend it doesn't exist. You can look away. And, and I've seen in Europe, attempts to pretend that this isn't happening because those data gathering agencies, once they find the data or they think it's pointing in a certain direction, they commission another study and another study until they get to a point where, you know, the latest studies cancel out the earlier studies. But the problem is, I mean, you can pretend it's not happening, but it goes on to happen and gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, obviously people find this topic so uncomfortable that they just avoid it or lie about it. And uh, that I understand that urge on an emotional level. I, I really do. But as you say, reality doesn't go away when you stop thinking it about it or, or looking at it. It gets worse. And in Europe, if it can be any lesson for Americans, the far right parties are doing so well. They've never done better. I mean, think about Front National, which is the far-right party in France. Uh, in the polls, during the last election, they, they, were nearly, they nearly took the presidency. And again, next year there are elections and there is this palpable, palpable fear in France that they could get elected. Again, they could, like, that could be the biggest part. Marie Le Pen could be the president of France. And that's only possible because it took the French leadership so long to acknowledge these issues. And she's basically running mostly on these issues. And then she, there's a side issue there on Europe. Uh, but even that's indirectly related to the issue of immigration, Islam, and sexual violence, all of the things that uh, have been rendered taboo. Same thing in Germany. Their populist party, it's emerging and getting uh, the confidence of the voters because the establishment parties have failed to address these issues. You see, it, I saw it in the Netherlands. Uh, it's very clear in Sweden now. Uh, a lot of people say this issue was, you know, it was a, part, a big reason for Brexit. So it, it's the things that you avoid by trying not to address that really empower the far right and the extremists. So the other part of this that's interesting and worrying is that we're in the Me Too era right now, which is an era of heightened concern about sexual harassment and sexual violence towards women. 
and um, although that started in the U.S., I think I think Europe is just as much experiencing the Me Too moment, from what I hear. And this, on one level, it seems like the problem you're taking aim at in this book should fit right into the ethos of Me Too. Yet, people who who are sort of loudly a part of the Me Too movement wouldn't go near this issue and would probably despise you or at minimum disagree with your take on this. So can you talk a little bit about that strange dynamic? Very strange dynamic. Yes. And there are two points I want to make on that. One is that the women who are affected right now are mainly working class women. And the reason is because immigrants start off at the lowest income levels, basically they depend on the state for their income. Uh, they are put in these working class neighborhoods. And some of these neighborhoods were, are populated by the people who traditionally voted for center left parties. Center left parties have abandoned these voters and are now counting on the immigrant vote. And it, these are the immigrants who are naturalized as citizens and who, who can't vote. But a second point is that the perpetrators largely are immigrant men and they are considered minorities. Minorities are vulnerable. They come from, as we discussed earlier, broken down societies. They've gone through a lot of suffering. So people feel sorry for them. And so if the Me Too movement were to start condemning immigrant perpetrators the way they condemn, say, white men, uh, they would see themselves as punching down. Like these guys are already vulnerable. They have low income. They've, so people get confused morally by these issues. And this is a self-inflicted problem because you can say, I condemn sexual violence regardless of who the perpetrator is. Or you can say, you know what, we're just going to focus on the wealthy, white, powerful men. And if you do that, de facto, you're then protecting the wealthy, white uh, <laughs> victims. Because, and, and, and then, you know, maybe unwittingly, uh, you have a class distinction now. Working class women victims have no one speaking for them. And the men from whom they fear, these men are also seen as victims. And, and so you get this crazy dynamic where, in my view, the most vulnerable victims, immigrant women and working class women, are abandoned. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you know one of the issues I'm most worried about right now is bias in the news. It's very difficult to find news sources that are unbiased, that don't have a left-wing or a right-wing slant. But one of the tools that I found most useful personally in wading through this landscape of biased news is called Ground News. So Ground News is a website and an app. And what it does is it, it basically takes the top stories every day, gives a bunch of articles and analyzes them by their left-wing or right-wing bias. So you can just go to Ground News as your main news source, 
look at a bunch of different articles and see how different outlets on the left and the right are covering the same issue. And one of my favorite features on Ground News is called the blind spot. What the blind spot does is it's a feed of stories that the left and the right are ignoring. So every day there are a set of stories that the left wants to report on and the right wants to ignore and vice versa. And the blind spot feature just lists all of these stories. And it's, it's fascinating to look at which stories both sides of the country don't want to pay attention to in a particular day. So if you're trying to be an informed consumer of the news, I could not recommend ground news more. So the website is ground.news, not groundnews.com. It's ground.news. And you can also download the app. So I highly recommend that. And just to to put a sharp point on how different the attitude is, depending on whether you are, say, a working class person in, in one of these neighborhoods you describe, or if you're someone like me at Columbia, I remember taking a sexual assault survey and at Columbia a few years ago. And one of the questions asked if, if you had ever declined to have sex with someone and their response was to get a little bit angry. And if you answered yes to that question, it counted you as a victim of sexual assault. Right. And like by that definition, I have been sexual, sexually assaulted. (laughs) And I remembered flagging this and, and, trying to talk about it, but there was just, right. This is just, it was completely. So, so that's how sensitive, that's how broad the definitions of sexual assaults have gotten in these elite spaces, largely populated by, by wealthy and privileged people. Yeah. And on the flip side of the coin, it's, you have police departments in Europe turning a blind eye in some cases for years to actual rape of, in, in some cases, children, because yeah. it's so uncomfortable the fact that the people happen, who happen to be committing these, these crimes happen to be immigrants and happen to be brown. And I bet you it's no different in America because the Me Too movement, movement doesn't go that far. It doesn't, it doesn't protect vulnerable communities because in those communities, the perpetrators are part of those communities. So. I bet you they don't have those questionnaires in certain areas in LA or Chicago or New York or you name it. Yeah. Yeah. So there is this paradox where what my friend Christina Hoffsommers describes uh, as a fainting couch feminism where young women in Ivy League universities, uh, super privileged, see themselves as victims and when we talk about victimization, it's just as you said, it, it's not, you know, that they've really been physically assaulted or anything like that. It is maybe someone makes a clumsy joke or even says something like these days, there's so much policing around language that you can claim you're traumatized as a, as a woman by what someone says or thinks or how someone looks at you. And we don't seem to be paying any attention to real assault, real physical assault, which, uh, and rapes and, uh, and gang rapes. So in Europe, it's not even, you know, when, when I was doing research for, for this work, there are all these distinctions that I made, rape by an acquaintance, uh, rape by a spouse, and then by strangers, and then the number of people who take part in that. And, uh, you know, 
if you look at the most extreme form of sexual violence, it's happening, we're even failing to document it, let alone go after the perpetrators and punish it. And if you refuse to document it, then that means that's also a choice, you know. It also it means you accept that these things go on. And so maybe in a way it, it's, uh, it's easier for people to focus on these non-problems because that way they think they're doing something about sexual violence. But they're infantilizing women, they're infantilizing powerful, privileged, well-educated women and completely ignoring what's happening to vulnerable women in vulnerable communities. There was one woman you interviewed in the book who described, and, and this also leads to an, another big topic for the book, which is the retreat of women from certain public spaces as a result of feeling unsafe. Um, so there's one woman you interviewed that was testifying to, to, to no longer walking through a certain park in her town and so forth, and now carrying pepper spray to avoid harassment. And you, you write in the book, I got the sense she almost wished that they were white Germans harassing her so that, so that the problem would be easier to discuss. Yes. And she wasn't the only one. There were so many of them who said it, was, it would have been so much easier if they were just the local white guys, because the outrage would be tremendous. But because it's immigrant men, uh, refugees, asylum seekers, men and young men who come from vulnerable communities, these women are left to the, uh, you know, to, I would say outside of the rule of law. And so what they've done, those who could afford, is to move house. They would look, go uh, find a place in a better, safer neighborhood. Others adapted, and, and I find that in some ways chilling. They adapt by adopting the same survival tactics as immigrant Muslim women. They would cover themselves. They would seek, you know, when they leave their houses, uh, go out in, in crowds, you know, like two, three, four, maybe call a male relative and say, can you walk me from here to there? They gave up things like jogging or dining out or even being out uh, after dark. Now, in some of these countries in the winter, it gets dark at 4 p.m. So these women are adjusting in these ways or deciding, you know, tonight I'm not going out, I'll just stay in. And this is precisely when I lived in Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, I, I just remember that's how we lived. That's how we survived. If you are a young woman and you didn't want to get into trouble, it would all be your fault. So to avoid all of that, uh, you just stayed at home and you, you abide by the rules of not getting yourself into trouble. Why is this chilling? Because if you look at the history of women's rights and women's emancipation, the public space being safe for women, there are really only very few societies that have actually accomplished that, and even not 100% still. And those societies are, yeah, Northern European countries, parts of the US. And the idea was always the rest of the world is going to adapt women will see their rights expand and their freedoms expand. And now it's the opposite. European women are adapting in their own countries to the norms, some of the norms of immigrant men that come from misogynist societies. And that is a backwardness for women. And feminists are silent on this. I know they're screaming over the rooftops, 
on the Me Too issues. But on this, they're silent. And I think this has more, um, for the future, I think this is going to be more defining than the Harvey Weinsteins of this world. So an, another way of, of looking at it is, is to consider the reverse hypothetical, right? I, I totally get the feeling of wishing the perpetrator were white so it were easier to discuss. Another way of looking at it is to imagine if, if an issue like mass shootings in America, which is just this horrible, intractable issue that we can't seem to solve. Imagine if instead of the majority of the high-profile mass shooting cases being uh, young white guys, imagine if they were young black guys or young Arab guys almost exclusively. Can you imagine instantly how it would become more difficult for people certainly living in the, the more liberal parts of America to just talk about this issue over the dinner table, to really take seriously that this is a problem that needs to be solved now, to talk about it with urgency, any kind of moral urgency, right? Like that would instantly become more difficult just by changing the skin color of the yeah. people doing, doing the crime. And that's really concerning. That's not how it should be, right? A life should be a life or, 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 or in the case of sexual violence, um, mm -hmm. you know, sexual suffering should be sexual suffering. Yeah. Uh, and it should not matter the skin color of the perpetrator. And yet it, it completely does to our ability to condemn the problem and to find solutions. You know, that analogy, as you, as you were talking, I was thinking about France, uh, mainly France, uh, but also Germany, Sweden, other European countries, where that's precisely what we've seen happen in terms of the Islamist terrorism and terrorist attacks and terrorist plots. And, you know, how that's um, in some places, I, again, France is a good example, but the UK is another where it's relentless, uh, young Muslim descendant of an immigrant from a vulnerable community, even the individuals who are perpetrating these terrorist attempts or attacks are themselves incredibly vulnerable. And then the discomfort with which this was met. And in the early years, all sorts of excuses were made. You know, they were just acting out because they're disenfranchised, because they're victims of discrimination, uh, because they're poor, uh, because they care about the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict. All sorts of excuses were made until, and again, I want to use France as an example, because in France, they ran out of excuses. There were, the attacks were relentless. They were coming over and over again. They were foiling plot after plot. They continued to do that. They were also becoming more gruesome, you know, beheadings, that sort of thing. And at some point, Francois Hollande, who was a social democrat, very much on the left, uh, who we would call him woke in America, he indulged these fantasies about uh, disenfranchisement and so on. Uh, and that to even address the issue was racist. There was a cynical thing there because they, he wanted the vote, uh, the Muslim vote. But that aside, Francois Hollande, who was a man of the left, introduced these emergency laws. 
And so you can see how when you neglect to address these issues and you, you coat them in identity politics, where a life is not just a life, where a perpetrator is not just a perpetrator, you make it more co unnecessarily complicated. You go from, oh, but we, we can't do this because of the values we believe in, because we don't want to restrain people, because we don't want to hold all, group, all of these groups as suspects. So from talking like that to a complete national emergency. And I think they were in that for multiple years. And it's still a sort of Damocles that hangs over their heads in France. What does that state of emergency mean? It means that the state, the government can come into your house, that they can pick you out of your bed and take you, arrest you, interrogate you without a lawyer, put you away for as long as they want, because it's emergency laws. So it is literally doing the opposite of everything they were saying they wouldn't do. And taking us, government becomes unaccountable and opaque. Obviously, when you do these sorts of sweeps, you're going to catch people who are innocent and affect people who have nothing, uh, you know, who thought they had nothing to fear and who were law-abiding. All of this happens. So the analogy that you just said of imagine if these actions were committed only by people of color, but then you use skin color as an exoneration of whole groups, you can apply it the other way too. Yeah. Yeah. And again, and here's what the paradox I don't understand. Coleman, I don't know if you, if you see it the way I do. All of these rhetoric about protecting minorities, whether it's because of their skin color or their gender or because they're transgender, all of these things ultimately end up harming the people, the groups that were supposed to be protected, defunding the police in, or calls for defunding the police and having law enforcement uh, and, and the work they do compromise because of, you, of a few bad apples. That harms the Black community more than anyone else. Really, the, the moral impulse behind claims to help minorities is actually more tied to the skin color of the perpetrator than to the skin color of the victim. So the, the algorithm that's running on people's minds now in, in the social justice movement is look at the skin color of the person committing this offense. Yeah. And if it's white, that's what tugs at my heartstrings, right? Yeah. And if the, victim, if the victim is black, then, then that, or, or, or minority of some kind, that helps too, but it's actually not, it's not tied to reducing the suffering of people of color in itself. It's, it's tied only insofar as whoever's causing the problem is white or male or at the proper end of the intersectional matrix. So it's a, it's a, it's a mis, it's misleading yes. uh, as a, as a moral algorithm. It's, it's actually not, it's not even what it says it is. Yeah. And for, for the European leaders, who, who, who choose to use this algorithm, you know, this identity politics, this rhetoric, for them, the reward lies in that they can look away comfortably, that they don't have to address these incredibly difficult issues of push factors from the countries of origin, the pull factors that is doing something about the welfare state, or developing programs to help assimilate the immigrants that they've invited in. It just exonerates them from all of these responsibilities. They can go about their lives 
and never have to deal with immigrants, never have to see them. Uh, they can have their own little white ghettos. For the in America, if, like I was, you know, <laughs> carefully studying this this movement called Black Lives Matter and their leadership. Their leadership seemed to be actually acquiring, at least you know what you can measure, which is these material benefits. While at the same time, black people are facing more crime, and black on black crime is increasing. And black lives are being compromised. Yeah, while while BLM leaders get multiple houses, they get multiple houses. Move out of the neighborhoods. The police are no longer sufficiently policing. Right. There is that, and then they have all of these demands for reparations, and they they raise these monies. But then, if you can't hold them accountable, because if you ask, you know, what have you done with the money that you raised? That in itself is racist. So they can get away with all of that and they can see their lives financially improve or get jobs that they probably aren't qualified for, but, you know, who, who dares fire them? But then you go on the ground in the projects where Black people live and, and the crime rates soar. And then you see all these desperate Black mothers who are saying, please bring the police back in. Please bring back the law and order. And that, I, so I, in, it's, I think people like you and me who have to point out to these things and say, if you are sincerely interested in helping black people, vulnerable people, immigrants, transgender people, women, then look for those who really need that help and put your money, your effort, your time there. Don't give it to these charlatans. Yeah, part of the problem is that the charlatans are very effective in persuading the elite that they speak for the group that they're claiming to represent. And it doesn't seem to matter how much evidence comes out that testifies to the gulf between, say, a, gr- a group like Black Lives Matter and what the typical Black person in America wants, right? It, it, there's, at this point, so many polls from Pew and Gallup. Yeah. One, one, for instance, from Gallup that finds, you know, 60% of Black people say they want the same amount of police presence in their neighborhood. Roughly yeah. 20% say they want more. And then 20% say they want less. So that puts about one-fifth of Black people in accord with Black Lives Matter's position on how much, on what we should do with police presence. And it puts 80% of Black Americans in opposition to Black Lives Matter Matter on that particular subject. You would never predict that from the tenor of the rhetoric, certainly coming from Black Lives Matter and from, from the left in general. And I think because maybe people listen to Black Lives Matter because they get, an, you know, they get the feeling that they're doing something about the problem, write a check, and then hope that it goes away. Or put a sign in front of your gate in a super wealthy neighborhood saying Black Lives Matter. That's just one of the most ridiculous things I've seen around here. Um, like a talisman. You know, if you live in Africa, people wear some of these bracelets and inside the bracelet is like a little package of prayers and that's supposed to ward off the evil spirits. And people believe that if you wear those things, you don't get malaria or in this case, maybe COVID, whatever. And so here you have these people with these um, placards in front of their exclusively 
white, exclusively wealthy neighborhoods and having Black Lives Matter. Uh, and so they feel they've done something. They've written a check and they have the sign in front of them. And, you know, 20% of people, Black people who want more police, they don't have to bother with those. And perhaps they're hoping the BLM sign on their coffee shop will lead the rioters to skip their business when the riots <laughs> come around again at some level. That is, yeah. So it is, it's that irrational, obviously not laughing matter, but just ridiculous. And I hope that we go past this and see how that it becomes uh, clear to most, you know, most people are just going about their daily lives. You can't blame them for that. People have children to raise, work to go to, their own personal issues to deal with. But the people who are either the elected leaders or the appointed leaders or the self-appointed leaders, people who want to get involved, I wish that they could see these paradoxes. Yeah, that empowering the charlatans just makes the problem bigger. It won't go away. That looking away just makes the problem bigger. That that even in itself is a choice. Allocating resources to the wrong issues, to the wrong places. And then just how terrible from a moral perspective we ignore the 20% who want more police. That breaks my heart because the black people in America who are saying they want more police, those are the, that 20%, they're the ones who live in very violent neighborhoods. So let's talk about solutions or, or the path forward for, for the problem you're, you're talking about in this book. Obviously, what we're talking about is in large measure a problem of culture, which makes it in principle, solvable, but also practically difficult to solve. You can't just pass a law that changes a culture. And yet cultures change all the time for for the better and for the worse. Right. So both on the cultural and from a policy perspective, what do you see as the path forward here? So from the cultural perspective, as you point out, that's a long time game. (laughs) And I would say the most urgent thing is to try and halt the spread of the woke philosophy, the identity politics, uh, to challenge that ideology. And as you as you do with these uh, analogies, you know, expose taking these things to their logical consequence. If we do everything that the woke people are asking for, this is what our society would look like. This would be tribal. It would be more violent. It would, you know, it would be pretty much like Somalia or Afghanistan or any of those places where society is divided along groups that are hostile to one another, fear one another, uh, and are constantly plotting how they can destroy each other. It's a zero-sum game. And so I think in the short run, it is to try and halt this and reverse that, that uh, ideology from taking over the cultural institutions. Um, And then I think that it is time, maybe an unintended good consequence of all of this is that we look into these institutions and see um, why they're failing at, uh, there are failures. I mean, you, you, you know this better than I do. In, in Europe, it's easier to pinpoint because the problem is relatively clear. It is the integration or the assimilation process that has failed. In America, it's the education system. 
the public education that keeps on churning graduates out that can barely read or write. You know, it, it's this type of thing, long-term things where we have to come together. And, and that is tied to policy as well, because you have to make the resources available and find the right people to do that job. Uh, I've read all I can about charter schools, but also alternative schools to the public schools. And these pilot efforts seem to be working. Why are we not investing in those? Why are we not standing up to the unions, teachers' unions? Uh, and, you know, that's where culture and policy are tied, uh, tied to one another. The reforming of the criminal justice system in these institutions, the police putting their necks on people's necks, oh, sorry, uh, their knees on people's necks, the chokehold. A, a lot of this has been discussed, but I think these are things that I think perhaps I'm not, I'm not an expert. I don't know what I'm talking about, but a knee on the neck of someone you're arresting with all my ignorance, I would say that's something I, I think shouldn't be happening. And I know I'm opening myself up for criticism from the experts who say, look, you don't know what you're talking about. I totally understand that. I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not in the police force. I'm not the one who's confronted with a combination of mental health issues, homelessness, violent crime, drugs, gangs. I don't have to deal with any of that. But I suppose there are, things, there are ways that we can improve the system so that less people die at the hands of the police. But also give the police the resources they need, and maybe we should have special specialized forces that deal with violence. Mental health issue is not something for the police to deal with. There are other policies, and there are countries that have done very well. I know that I am very critical of Europe, but there are a number of things that they're doing better than America. Their policing and their approach to mental health seems to be way more effective than what we are doing in America. So maybe there are a few things that we can learn from the other side of the, of the Atlantic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I plan on doing a podcast on that topic with, uh, with an expert very soon. So I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I'm, I'm really glad that I was finally able to get you on. And uh, I, I hope my listeners enjoy this. and. I will point them in the direction of your book. The book is Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. So thank you so much for this conversation, Ayan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Coleman. And thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. All right. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.